I'll be reading Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. It's a long way out today for Children's Church. Hey, uh, as we begin today, I want to share an announcement with you all. Uh, we have some, some great news. Um, first off, I just want to say just a huge thanks to our praise team that has just done amazing and gone above and beyond over the last couple of months as they have, yes, led us through this time of transition. We are so grateful. Uh, but we have uh, hired a new worship leader. Um, so if you guys will remember a few weeks ago, we had a guest worship leader. Uh, his name is Tyler Hooker. And Tyler was here a couple weeks ago, and uh, we had the opportunity to let him play with the praise team, uh, the elders to interview him. We actually sent uh, Jeff Case to go visit uh, his church where he uh, is leading worship presently. And uh, we have called him and he is accepted um, and he will begin leading worship here on the 20th of August, so not very long. We are excited to have him come. just want to give you a little bit of background on him. Uh, Tyler has uh, a degree in music ministry from College of the Ozarks. As a matter of fact, he went to school with Keith Slater, so if you need some dirt on him, I'm sure Keith would be happy uh, to tell you a little bit about that. He has been in various worship leadership positions since 2008. And he has most recently been serving at First Baptist Rogersville for the last six years. So we are grateful uh, for the opportunity to come and uh, worship alongside him. And he'll be here in a couple short weeks. So be praying for him and his family as they make that transition. And also just be praying for First Baptist Rogersville as they're going through their own series of transition, now looking for a lead pastor and a worship pastor at the same time. So be, be praying for them as well. Would you guys pray with me as we move into our teaching time? Father, we are so grateful for the way that you have blessed our church with such powerful music leaders and the praise team that we have. We just thank you for them. Lord, we uh, just pray for Tyler as he comes. We pray that you would prepare he and his family as they make this transition. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, together as a church we would glorify you um, and that uh, through, through the gift of singing you would be worshipped with, with all of our heart. Uh, Father, I pray that... Uh, you would be with us today as we continue through the teaching that um, our church would just be encouraged and challenged, Lord. Help us not to remain stagnant, uh, but to grow. So, Lord, we, we put this in your hands. We ask that your spirit be here. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So one of the things that uh, my preaching prof taught me uh, when I was in seminary was the importance of an introduction. As a matter of fact, he literally, I have a book on my shelf called Introductions, written by my preaching prof. He literally wrote the book on introductions. Um, today, I'm going to give you our introduction 
as the main point. And that's the whole introduction. So here's our introduction today. This, this would be a fail, according to my preaching professor. This is not a good introduction, but we're just jumping in here. Here's, here's the central point of the whole message today. So this guy also taught us, you know, three-point sermons, and, like, it's wonderful. It's really organized. He said sometimes you have a two-point sermon. Sometimes you have a five-point sermon. Sometimes you have a one-point sermon. This is it. This is the one point. This is where we're going to be coming back to. The whole message is this. David never did anything to deserve God's blessing. David never did anything to deserve God's blessing. Now, I know what you're thinking. Are you sure? Because I've been to Sunday school for a long time, and David seemed like a pretty rad dude. David never did anything to deserve God's blessing. And today you're going to leave thinking, how did it ever cross my mind that this guy deserved anything from God other than God's condemnation and judgment and, frankly, death? By the time we leave today, I think you're going to hate David as much as I do now. <laughs> I want you guys to think back to the beginning of the story of David. I want you to think about David as a young man in the, in the pasture, playing his harp, singing his songs. His brothers had been summoned by Samuel to come and see which one of them would be king. But there's humble David, sitting in the pasture, Praising the Lord, tending the sheep like a gentle soul, right? And then he comes, the last son comes before Samuel, and it's David, who's probably somewhere between 15 and 20. It's David who is said will be the next king of Israel. This, this kid who, yes, it's it. we're told uh, in this particular part of 1 Samuel that God is, is not one who looks on the outside, but one who looks on the inside. So immediately, when we look at David, we're supposed to say, well, there's not much there. There's not much there. He's just a little guy. But we're supposed to look inside, and we're supposed to see that, as, as uh, we learn from the Disney movie Mulan, he is one who is loyal, brave, and true, right? <laughs> and that he is this boy of virtue, and so we're supposed to be, all right, okay. But at the same time, as we look at the inside and we see his virtue, we're never supposed to think that David was capable of becoming this great leader. We're never supposed to think that David is capable of defeating Goliath. We're never supposed to think of David as one who's capable of destroying the enemies of God and Israel. That, his, his virtue comes from what's on the inside, not the outside. So when he comes and fights Goliath, as we look at this, we're supposed to see it is God who defeated Goliath, not David. It is God who gets the victory, God who gets the glory. As we followed through David's life, we saw that he's one who continually inquired of the Lord. He looked back to the Lord and said, how do I do this? What do you want me to do? And he followed in obedience but that doesn't mean he always walked in obedience, right? We talked about this last week. Last week we saw how David uh, uh, made a mistake 
and how he brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. He brought it on a cart rather than inquiring of the Lord how he should move it. Then we see that when David does make a mistake and he's challenged by it, he is one who repents and does the right thing. So, if we aren't careful, we can begin to make a huge mistake. We can look at David's virtuous youth. We can look at David's dependence on the Lord throughout his early adult, adult years. And we can even look at the, the nature of David's repentance and start to think that even though he never did anything to earn God's favor from the beginning, we can start to think that maybe he became a man who maintained God's favor. If I want to put it a little more bluntly, I might say this. We know that David didn't earn God's grace at the beginning, but somehow along the way, David became a man who was worthy of God's grace. Except that this is not at all what the text lets us think. I don't know where this came from. I got a feeling it's Michelangelo's statue of David, that somehow when we see him presented in this artwork, we think of him as some glorious hero. But if we would just read the Bible, as I talked about David this week, I, I could not help but describe David as a scumbag. David is a bad dude. He's a jerk. And it is only by God's grace that we have a story of redemption. Church, what I want us to see today is that there was never a point in David's life where he deserved God's grace and his mercy. Not in the beginning, not in the middle, and not in the end. What I want us to see today is that even the legendary David was in desperate need. His only hope for salvation was the grace and mercy of God. Now, last week we ended with the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem. And we ended with David being able to worship God in truth because he was humble and he was repentant and he was dependent on the Lord. So when the Ark is finally in Jerusalem, David decided it was time to build a temple for the Lord. Except God said, no, you don't get to build the temple for me. However, just because God did not let David build the temple did not mean that God did not have a blessing in store for David. So look with me at 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. And this is the Lord speaking. When your days are fulfilled and you lay down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. Oof, oof. If we were to do a long study on First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, we would see what that rod of men looks like. With stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Right in here, we see three promises, three central promises, and it's this. 
that the sin of the king will be disciplined. The sin of the king will be disciplined. And this isn't a three-point sermon, so these aren't going to be three points that we're going to develop later, okay? So, uh, but that's, that's one of the things we see right here as a promise. We see that the kingdom will endure forever. Ultimately, we're going to see that this kingdom is fulfilled forever in Christ. And the third promise here is that God will not stop loving David and his sons, even in their sin. What powerful promises. A promise of discipline, a, a promise of never-ending love, and a promise of an eternal kingdom. It's an amazing promise for David to receive. Now, if we were to go through chapters 8, 9, and 10, they go on to tell more about David's good work. And we learn about more victories over David's enemies. And we learn about the kindness that David shows to uh, his, his best friend, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. And much like we saw at the beginning of last week's message, David was doing well and he was enjoying the blessing of the Lord. But David had not fully learned the lesson that we should have, that he and we should have learned to this point. David always seems to follow the Lord more closely and more diligently when the needs of the world force him to God. He, he finds it more uh, easy to depend on the Lord when he is desperate. There's just something about victory, there's something about wealth and achievement that makes us vulnerable to the sin of pride and entitlement. Let me say that again. There's something about victory and wealth and achievement that makes us vulnerable to the sin of pride and entitlement. Now, what do we know about David? What have we seen over and over about him? David is a man of action. When David sees something he wants, he goes and gets it. He takes it. He knows how to win. The problem is that in David's pride, he doesn't always think things through. Pride makes you dumb. Nobody said amen. (laughs) Indicator of your pride, let me just say. A humble person would have said amen. So what did David do, right? He he rushed to get the ark to Jerusalem. He rushed because he wanted it. He seized it. And what happened? Uzzah paid the price for his boldness without inquiring of the Lord, and Uzzah died. Where we find ourselves now, where we're going next, is 2 Samuel chapter 11. Go ahead and open your, your Bibles there, 2 Samuel chapter 11. And David has set his eyes on a woman who was married to another man. And somehow, that sentence was not enough to make him stop. That was not enough to slow him down. Now, before we get into chapter 11 here, and we begin to to walk through that, I, I want to set the scene by explaining, as I said earlier, that David is a terrible guy. In particular, he was a terrible husband. And I don't mean that tongue-in-cheek. I mean that quite literally. I mean that like 
I really don't like this guy. Okay? David made a series of mistakes, huge mistakes along the way that set him up for some serious pride and some next-level foolishness. It all started back in 1 Samuel chapter 18 when David married his first wife. Okay, now, 2 Samuel 11, David's in his 40s. It started, it started in 1 Samuel chapter 18 when David was probably around 20. Okay, it started that long ago. Here's what 1 Samuel chapter 18, 20 says. Now Saul's daughter Michael loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. What's that verse tell us? Michael loved David. And then it says, and they, who's the they? That's David and Michael. They told Saul, and the thing pleased him. So David appears to have loved Michael. Now Saul has this idea. I'm going to kill David by telling him to bring me the foreskin of 100 Philistines. We talked about this a while ago. What a gross present. But David didn't just do 100. He killed 200 Philistines for this woman. He and his men went out and killed 200 Philistines. I want you to think about that for a second. He risked his life in battle for this woman. He put it all on the line. He literally fought a war to save this woman, for this woman to be his. That's some love, all right? Uh, that, that, they make movies after that. You know, the story of Helen of, Helen of Troy is, is, is that same basic idea, right? Like, this, this is a big deal. He goes to war for her. Now, then Saul begins to do very Saul things, and Saul decides to kill David again. And, and Michael, this woman who loved him, lied to her father and protected David and smuggled him out of town so that he could live and be free. She chose her husband over her own father. And David gets out of Dodge and does nothing in regard to Michael. I, I, this may be crazy, okay, but, but it blows my mind. This is not in Scripture. This is Brandon just being irritated at this guy. He will literally go out with his men and kill 200 Philistines, but he won't try to smuggle his wife, who risked her neck to save him, out of, the, out of town? He leaves her there. He abandons her there. Mistake number one. David abandoned his wife, who put it all on the line for her. Now, time goes on, and David's on the run, and he makes his second mistake, and third and fourth mistake, all at once. 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 42 through 44 says this, And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took uh, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galilee. Now, Abigail, by all accounts, seems to be an awesome woman. 
She is described with great honor. Abigail is not the problem here. In fact, I'm not even sure that marrying Abigail in and of itself is, is a problem. I don't think that's a big deal. But there are some significant exceptions here. First, David had abandoned Michael. That's problem number one, right? He just abandoned her. He, he didn't go and get her. Now, in that day and age, abandonment was as good as divorce. They didn't have attorneys back then. Women had no property rights, so there was no uh, debate or who gets what. No, it all belonged to the man anyway. So abandonment is as good as divorce. The problem is David did not see himself as divorced. We'll find that out later. So in, in David's absence, Saul marries Michael to another man, to Palti. But when David becomes king in 2 Samuel, chapter 3, verse 13 through 16 says that David ordered his wife to be taken from her new husband and be brought to him, showing that he clearly did not see himself as divorced from her, even though it had been years and years that she has been married to another guy. He takes her, and, and the dude is weeping crying after Michael as she's being taken away. David clearly didn't see himself as divorced, and yet he took other women to be his wives. The second problem, yeah, is that David took two wives. So where we find ourselves in 1 Samuel chapter 25 is, if you count Michael, David has three wives. But we're not done. Okay, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 13 says that after David had put down an uprising of, of Saul's son, uh, uh, Ishbosheth, uh, that, that after he's made this run at the kingdom, that David moves his capital to Jerusalem. It says that David took more wives and concubines. Now, we don't have the exact number, but we can go through and trace through the different places in 1 Samuel, and we can see that at this point in chapter 5, David already had seven wives. He already had seven wives, okay? And it says that he took more wives. So it only goes up from there. Now, I need you to hear me, church. God has clearly already told David that this was not acceptable. Think back with me to the beginning of our study in 1 and 2 Samuel when we first talked about the dangers of appointing a king to begin with. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 16 and 17 has this warning. It says this about the king. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order that they may require many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives. I mean, that's what it says. Just like, ugh, it said how to carry the ark, not on a cart, if he would just read the Bible. Let that be a warning to you. Read the Bible. It tells you what to do. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive gold or silver and gold. God made it clear that the king must abstain from many wives. Here's what I need you guys to understand for a second. In this day and age, 
there was a cultural acceptance, especially of kings, especially of kings, to have multiple wives. It was culturally acceptable. In our day and age, we might call this a socially acceptable sin, which means you may not pay a social stigma for having this sin in your life. You may not pay that cost socially, but that does not mean it doesn't have a cost. In our day and age, anger is one, or gluttony is one. That is a socially acceptable sin. Yet those have costs. They're not not sins just because the culture doesn't snub you because you deal with them. In the same way, he may not be paying a social penalty for having multiple wives, but this is clearly, clearly forbidden in Scripture. Okay? So we need to understand that. All right, so where, where are we? David, the king of Israel, had multiple wives. Israel was supposed to be different. David was supposed to be different from society and culture around him. And yet we see that David's pride leads him to defy God's law, and he takes multiple wives. And if that's not bad enough, if that's not problematic enough, not to mention the fact that he called Michael back from her second husband, David's pride and defiance of God was not done. David was not content with what he had. He wanted more, no matter what it cost him. Now, 2 Samuel chapter 11 is the story of David's affair with Bathsheba, and, and I'm not going to read that today. Uh, instead, I'm, I'm going to just tell the story. So if you want to go back this week and read 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, that's where we're going to spend most of the rest of our time today, you can see what happens. Instead, I'm just going to, to tell you the story. Now, the first thing you guys will notice if you look at the opening verses of chapter 11 is that the rest of, at the time when kings went off to war is one of the things it said. And uh, I don't know how many sermons I've heard uh, the story of David and Bathsheba where everybody makes this like huge deal about David should have been off to battle. I couldn't care less. I couldn't care less if David should have been off to battle. Maybe the, maybe the man needed a vacation. I mean, he'd been fighting war for a long time. Maybe he needed a break, and it was time to delegate. Okay, I just think that's a convenient excuse. He should have been someone else. I don't care. Like, he's responsible for his actions, whether he should have been somewhere else or not. So, moot point. Okay, so I've probably preached that in the past, and I'll probably preach it again in the future. But remind me, I said, moot point. It doesn't matter. All right, so here David is, should have been off to war, but he's at home, and it's a nice night, and he goes out on the roof of his house. Now, this is cool, all right, I've been there, not to David's house, it's gone, but I've been on the hill where David's house was in Israel, and the way it's set up is it's a hill, and then there's a valley, and then there's a hill, and so when you turn and look out, like, you could literally see everybody's backyard from the top of the hill. But not only that, even if she lived outside the city walls and in the, in the, across the valley going up the next hill, you can still see into those houses. They're not that far. It's not like he, he, here to Bass Pro. I mean, we're talking like the valley would be like here to Wendy's. It's not, it's not that far to be able to see uh, where it is. So for those of you listening on the Internet, now you've got to Google it and see what's around us. Okay, so, so he's on the rooftops, and he looks over the edge, and he sees this woman bathing in her own home. Whoops, I think I'm going to go inside. Boom, it's over. 
Not, no harm, no foul. It doesn't make the Bible, okay? Like, no, ah, and he's gone. Except that's not what happens. Okay, that's not what happens. He stops and he lingers and he, he watches for a while. Now, this sinful, lustful, opportunistic moment is wrong in and of itself. But that could have been it. He could have stopped. And that been it. But he doesn't. He decides to talk to his servants about her. Hey, who's this girl? That's the wife of Uriah. Now she's married. What a great opportunity to stop. And yet, he doesn't stop. Go get that woman for me. And so David then uses his power as king, his position of authority to bring that woman to him to have sex with her. That is 100% abusive. He used his power and authority to make this happen. There's no other way to slice it. When you abuse your power and authority to get what you want at someone else's expense, that is, by definition, abusive. And it just so happens that she gets pregnant. Well, what does David do next? He fesses up and takes his lumps. No! David begins, I just want you to see, like, how this is growing. Are you getting this? He says, okay, now I, I've got I to deceive Uriah. Let's call him back off the battlefield, and maybe I can, you know, get him drunk, and he can sleep with his wife, and all right, he'll never know. Oh, the baby's premature. You know, like that, that kind of thing, right? So, so David comes and he, he calls Uriah off the field. And if you find in another account of uh, the, the, the mighty men of David, Uriah the Hittite is listed as one of David's mighty men. So we're talking about this guy being a great soldier, a noble dude. He comes back to Jerusalem and he won't go home no matter how hard David tries. So David then writes orders to the general, hey, put Uriah at the worst fighting and then, like, when he's engaged with the enemy, pull back. Let him die. Seals it. And like a good soldier, Uriah, Uriah delivers his own execution note to his general, following orders. He marches out. He's a valiant fighter, and he dies in battle. Now, David has murdered. He deceived and he murdered, and then he decides, okay, now that Uriah's dead and out of the way, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to be the noble guy, and I'm going to marry Bathsheba. She can be number eight, and that's what we're going to call her, Ocho. So, you know, that's, that's, her, that's her term of endearment for her, Okay. And if you catch the uh, rather dismissive insult there, it's intentional because that's how David's treating her. I want you guys to see that, okay? So he's going to do the noble thing and marry her and take care of her and her and her son. But the Lord is furious with David. Now, the text says displeased. 
And I just can't help but notice that, like, as the, the scribe who's writing First and Second Samuel gets too furious and says, this is David, I'm going to write displeased here, you know, as a kindness to David. But everything about the way God responds, displeased is too small of a word. God responds with fury and wrath. Now, at the beginning of the message, I told you that the central theme of today's message is this. David never did anything to deserve God's blessing. Can I get an amen? Okay, what I hope you see at this point is that David has completely disqualified himself from blessing. Just look at his actions. If we just look at the outside, then we see David for who he is. He's a murderer. He's a deceiver. And out at best, at minimum, he's an adulterer. But the abuse of his power opens him to even more egregious allegations. Now listen, I want you to hear me here. I, I firmly believe that this is a historical account. I do not believe that this is symbolic sin. I believe David actually did these things. His sin is so stupid and so over the top that it seems like hyperbole. Like, really, no one could be this dumb. No one could be this deceived. No one can be this broken. No one can be this messed up that they have justified these kinds of things. No one could let themselves spiral to this place of out of control, especially not God's anointed, especially not one who's after God's own heart. There's no way this could be real. This has to be made up. This has to be hyperbole. But Scripture won't let us do that. This is how David is presented as a murderer, as a deceiver, and as an abuser. David never earned the blessing of God. He never did anything to maintain the blessing of God. God, in his grace and mercy, lets us see David for who he is and all his sin and all his baggage so that we won't explain it away. And if you ever find yourself defending David, you're part of the problem. Man! We can't explain it away. Let Scripture stand for itself. David is a bad guy. But there's hope for the bad guy. Oh, man. There's hope God, in his wisdom and in his spirit, sent him Nathan. Turn to chapter 12. Oh, praise God for Nathan. Nathan comes up to David. And Nathan begins to tell David a story for truth. Because it is a true story. He tells David a story about two men. One rich and the other poor. The rich guy has lots of livestock, and the poor man has only one little lamb. But this poor man loved his little lamb. He fed him with his own hand, slept in his bed. He treated this little lamb 
like a daughter. Then the rich man has a friend come to town, and he needs to feed this friend some dinner. So the rich man doesn't want to waste one of his own sheep. Just think about the analogies here. Do you see the, how there's words for David? He doesn't want to use one of his own sheep. He had lots of sheep. So he takes the sheep of the poor man and serves it for dinner. Chew on that. When you connect the dots to Bathsheba and David's own wives, are you seeing that? Served it for dinner. Now David, David hears this story. And it galls him. It fills him with anger. And he says to Nathan, as the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. You can see the anger. And then Nathan stands up and says, you are the man. And I don't know, but like, this was not a gentle thing. And it had to be a dagger to the heart of David because immediately he knew. He knew what Nathan was talking about. It's not about sheep. It's not about lambs. It's about people. This is about a woman. About a man he murdered. I just get this sense that in that moment when Nathan pointed at David, like if Bathsheba's father could have been there and done the same thing, if Uriah could have come back from the dead and done the same thing. I don't think it could have felt any worse for David because he knew in that moment, he knew in that moment what he had done. But Nathan's not done. Nathan continues by outlining all that David had done and all that God had given him. And and Nathan says to David, why would you ever need anything more than what God had blessed you with? And here we step outside of that and we look at David and we go, yeah, what? You kind of had it all, dude. And it wasn't enough for you? And all David does is sit there and take it because he knows the truth. He knows the truth. It wasn't enough. It should have been enough because he's a scumbag. It wasn't enough. And so Nathan continues, and he pronounces God's judgment. And this is why I think we should see God's fury and God's wrath over what happened. Nathan says there's going to be turmoil in your home. And that will include the way your wives are treated. Now, we'll save some of this for next week because we just don't have the time. Uh, But we should not think that God is the source of the abuse of of the women that we see uh, next week as we discuss this. Rather, what we should see is how sin begets sin. 
and how David's sin and, and David, we're going to talk about how, yeah, he's a bad husband. He's also a really bad dad. So if you're not done, like, being annoyed with David, I've got more. So we're, we're going to see that sin begets sin and that the turmoil in his home and the murder in his family is, is basically because David's a bad leader and that this is his fault, not the Lord's. Guys, the rest of David's life is under a shadow of his sin. Nathan tells David that God has spared his life and that he's not going to die for this. But there's this part of me that wonders if David would not have been better off dead. That living through the judgments that David had to walk through had to be worse than dying. And part of this judgment that he was going to receive is that the, t- the child conceived in sin was going to die. And at the end of this, at the end of this, David gives a one-sentence reply. And that one sentence is just two words in Hebrew. It's just two words in Hebrew. And in English, because we like to complicate things, it's six words. And these six words are this. I have sinned against the Lord. When he was faced with the reality of all that he did, his response is humility. He recognizes his pride and his arrogance and how all these things have led him to a place of independence from God. David's pride made him authority to himself. And that pride led him to the point where he thought he could just see a woman and take her for himself and kill her husband. But these two Hebrew words represent powerful humiliation. When David pronounced that the rich man and and Nathan's story deserved to die, at, at that moment, at that moment, David had to be, when he was confronted with this, you are the rich man, realizing that he is the one who deserved to die. What I love about the story of David, we're going to go late. What I love about the story of David is that he doesn't offer any excuses. Does he defend himself? Does he say, yeah, but... Does he say to Nathan, you don't understand? Does he make any excuse? Man, do you hear me? He makes no excuse. He does not give himself an out. He accepts the reality of his sin, and and something inside of David broke that day. Finally! He thought he could have it all. He thought everything was just there for him. Was that not enough? How could he say no? What are the ways, men, that we say we haven't had enough? the same ways we're no different than David. Where do we let our eyes wander? What do we let ourselves get into? And what I want you to see is that David, the life of David, simply, simply is the sin of pornography brought into real life. That's it. 
What he saw, he took. And he killed to defend it. That is no different, no different than the sin of pornography. And when David was confronted with the reality of his sin, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. Full stop! No yeah buts. No you don't understand. Full stop. So I want to read for you two psalms, just portions of two psalms that are David's heart after he realizes what he's done. Psalm 51. I want you to see this. David was never a man who deserved God's mercy and grace. And yet Psalm 51 opens with these words. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. At any point in verse 1, does he appeal to what he has done? Never! It's according to God's love and God's abundant mercy. He asked for God to blot out his transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He does not mess around. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. I've done it. Your judgment is blameless. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. Man, you teach me wisdom in the secret place, in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of whose salvation? God's salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Look at the words of Psalm 32. Blessed are the ones whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Just put your finger right there. Where's the real blessing? It's not in the material wealth. It's not in the kingdom. It's not in the achievement. It's in experiencing the grace of Christ, the grace of God. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. All right, that's important. In whose spirit there is no deceit. All right, for when I kept silent, when I pretended everything was okay, when I kept my mouth shut, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groanings all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. What David is saying here is, 
I may have kept my mouth shut. I may have pretended that everything was okay. But the conviction of the Holy Spirit was heavy and it was crushing me. Then what's he do? He goes from being silent, verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me, he says. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Y'all, David may have been a colossal sinner, but David knew how to repent. He made no excuses. He knew his only hope was in the Lord. He was not going to defend his sin. He was not going to keep silent about his sin. He was going to confess it to the Lord and find forgiveness there. David knows that as much as his sin is clearly against other people like Bathsheba, like Uriah, like his other wives, he knows that all sin is against God. To sin against people is to sin against the image of God. To sin against people, especially in the area of lust and pornography, is to sin against those who carry the image of God. And sin against people is thus to sin against God himself. I think David is called a man after God's own heart. Because when he was messed up, he never made excuses. He accepted and realized just how much he needed God. It's easy for us to sit here some 3,000 years ago after the life of David and think that we are so much different. But as we looked at David's sin, I'm sure that for many of you, the Holy Spirit brought your own sins to mind. Scripture tells us that no one is righteous, not even one. We are told that all have fallen short of the glory of God. Ephesians chapter 2 Verse 8 and 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that what? No one can boast. What's David's issue? Pride. And what do we see here? We're not saved by our works. We're saved by mercy and grace so that we can't boast. We're told in Romans 6.23 that our wages... What we actually deserve for our work is death. What that means is that if we try to work out our salvation, if we try to earn it, then we will reap what our actions deserve, and that is death. But the gift of God is eternal life for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus is called the son of David. 
And I've had a hard time getting my mind around that title. But Jim and I were talking about this this week, and Jim is so wise, he made a wonderful point. He said, when you think of David's brokenness and his sin, then Jesus being the son of David takes on a whole new image in this context. Because as the son of David, Jesus came for broken and needy people just like David and just like you and me. So when David says, have mercy on me, O God, we as his sons in the faith can also cry out to God, have mercy on me. David is an example of one who was desperate for God's mercy. And we should be desperate for God's mercy as well. We have never done anything to deserve God's mercy. And yet, it is ours to receive if we accept Jesus Christ, his son, as the savior for our sin, the one who took the punishment that we deserve, and that by his resurrection from the dead, we may have new life in Christ. Would the, would the praise team come? And, and Rachel, if, if you can, can we just do one song instead of two? This is our time to respond. This is our time to say to the Lord, have mercy on me. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. If you're a believer and you have been walking in your own strength and in your own power, it is time to lay down that pride and confess your need for Jesus. We're already a believer. Why do I need Jesus? Did you just see David's life? Was there ever a point where he didn't need salvation, grace, and mercy? We are desperate for his salvation, his grace, and his mercy from the time we put our faith in Jesus Christ to eternity and glory. So if you need to confess that need to him now, you can come forward and you can do it at the altar and you can do it where you're sitting. If you're here and you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior and you want to know more about what it is to know the kind of grace and mercy that even David can feel forgiveness for, then come, we'd love to talk with you about that. Would you pray with me? Lord, we, uh, we're so thankful for the way you love us. We do not deserve what you've done. But while we were your enemy, you died for us. Don't let us forget that. While we were far off, you called. Don't let us forget that. As we enjoy your blessing, don't let us become complacent. Don't let us take for granted. Don't let us say that what you've given is not enough. Help us to always, always be dependent on you. We ask you to work in our hearts as we sing. It's in your name we pray.